0: Welcome to the Driven by Prevention podcast by the Merck Animal Health swine team. Merck Animal Health is proud to be your invested partner in the industry and is focused on solving your swine disease and reproductive challenges for better business and improved animal welfare. Productivity, opportunity, partnership, wellness, all driven by prevention. Welcome to Management Considerations to Improve Breeding Herd Productivity. This National Hog Farmer Science Talks webinar is brought to you by Merck Animal Health. With us today are Dr. Kara Stewart from Purdue University and Dr. Erin Gaines with Anatech. Uh, Why don't you fill us in a little bit about your background.
1: Great, so I'm starting my sixth year as an Associate Professor at Purdue University in the Animal Sciences Department. Uh, I have an extension and teaching position there and I'm a reproductive physiologist for swine.
2: Uh, i Gaines. Uh, I'm a PhD nutritionist by training, uh, managing partner at Anatech. Uh, previously, I uh, worked with uh, a couple production companies and a feed company. i uh, been in the feed industry, or the livestock industry, for the last 20 years.
0: With that, let's get into the discussion. Uh, productivity, performance, efficiencies. Uh, we hear the importance of reaching a sow's, uh, sow herds weekly or monthly uh, breeding target. Can you elaborate? Why is that so important?
2: as you look at uh, hitting breed target it becomes important because if you don't hit breed, breed target, uh, that impacts wean pig volume. So if you don't have the wean pig volume, uh, you can't sell the pigs. And so uh, there's an opportunity there from a revenue standpoint. Uh, there's also some supply chain uh, implications. So if you don't have those pigs to sell and you've got packer commitments, uh, and you've got a shortage uh, in terms of your volume there that's got to be made up whether that's uh, going out in the open market. And buying pigs, uh, the other impact is on just overall production cost. Uh, if you don't have those pigs, uh, that if you don't hit that wean pig volume because you don't hit breed target, uh, you have less uh, less wean pigs to spread those fixed costs over. So inherently, uh, your wean pig costs go up in that scenario.
0: Okay, why do herds struggle with that?
2: I would say uh, uh, several reasons. Um, you know, one of the reasons uh, is a management component. Uh, as you look at uh, the opportunities on, on breed target, you know how many wean size you're going to have uh, for a given week, so that can be predicted. Uh, and then probably the, the wild card is just the, the gilt population of how well you're managing that gilt population uh, to know how many br- available breeds you're going to have out of that gilt pool. And so that really becomes a, a focus area as it relates to managing uh, for breed targets is the wean-sile population and making sure that you're putting a lot of emphasis on that guilt pool.
0: How does breed target impact, and you've kind of touched on this, uh, the cost of raising a weaned pig?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah it goes back to you know you got a lot of fixed cost in a pork production system and so if you got less wean pig volume you have less pigs to spread those fixed costs over so your wean pig costs go up and as you look at profitability drivers wean pig cost is uh, certainly a factor Uh, that goes into overall system or farm profitability.
0: Okay. Does gilt management, cell management, how does that tie into hitting that breeding target?
1: I think overall you have to have a consistent flow of gilts coming into puberty in order to enter into the breeding herd. And so that comes back to having labor to do good heat detection and good puberty stimulation in order to get this large group of gilts ready and like Aaron said to know and predict the breeding targets that you need and how many gilts you need each week to be entering into the breeding herd is a real challenge and having enough of those animals in puberty and ready to enter um, can be a real challenge.
0: You mentioned labor how does how do other factors play into that the facilities uh, the system itself
2: I'm gonna go back a little bit on the labor side because it it does get in the facility piece and and as we look at systems as it relates to focusing on that guilt in my mind we need to make sure we're putting our best people on that guilt population it's one of the most important resources for that farm to be successful we can talk about sow mortality and lifetime productivity but it all starts with that incoming guilt and so a lot of times we don't always put our best people in the guilt developers but we need to we need to make sure that those people are trained uh, on all aspects of how to rear that gilt and make sure that that gilt is eligible when she's ready to go into the breeding herd. And so that's, that's probably one of the biggest gaps I see in systems is just the, not having enough emphasis on that gilt population to be successful from the start. Uh, but as it relates to the facilities, there's a lot of variation uh, within systems on how they uh, manage those gilts as it relates, from a, as it relates to the facility. You've got some systems that have got on-site guild development at the South farm. Uh, in my mind, a lot of times that's ideal because uh, that, that system has been well thought out in terms of the facility layout, in terms of how much uh, floor space is allowed for the gilts, making sure that the feed system uh, is set up to be able to feed those guilds properly. And then you've got the other situation where you've got off-site guild development. And frankly, a lot of times those facilities are wean-to-market facilities or grow-finish facilities set up for conventional flow. Um, they don't work real well for multi-age gilts in terms of how you feed those animals. A lot of times those animals are stocked uh, fairly dense and so um, that can impact growth rate of that that female. And we know that we need to target a certain growth rate on those females to make sure that they're eligible to go in the breeding herd at the appropriate weight. And so facilities uh, play a big part in terms of getting that gilt ready to go into the breeding herd.
0: Can you? Elaborate on uh, gilt eligibility. What's the definition of gilt eligibility?
2: Um, I would say from a breeding weight standpoint, uh, that becomes really important. We want to try to target that that gilt to be 300 to 325 pounds. Uh, where does that number come from? If you go back and look at some of the, the literature, uh, it looks like lifetime productivity is optimized when that gilt is bred at 300 to 325 pounds. As it relates to other factors, uh, getting a heat no-serve on that guild or a couple heat no-serves becomes important uh, in terms of gill eligibility into the farm. um, Making sure that that animal has been on full feed, uh, she's growing well, she's healthy. Uh, Making sure the animal's been entered into the farm correctly from a health standpoint. Make sure she went through the proper um, isolation, acclimation. That acclimation is something that needs to be emphasized. The other piece is exposure to. Uh, other animals, uh, some shedders, so, um, you know, your best shedders are going to be your younger parity animals, not your older parity animals, so get your younger parity animals that are shedding some of those pathogens, uh, introduce those gilts, again, to build that immunity and allow time for recovery of those animals.
1: Eligibility might start earlier and earlier if we can track females better. Um, So we also know that the development of the female's reproductive tract starts in utero. um, And so selection of gilts uh, that maybe don't undergo certain in utero events, um, as well as birth weight. So we've had a lot of recent data in the past 10 years just correlating low birth weights to low productivity Later, delayed puberty um, and lower reproductive lifetime performance. Um, so the different selection time points before they even get to the GDU are also going to be important to make them eligible uh, to enter the breeding herd. And I think uh, birth weight and colostrum intake during that really early time frame right after birth is going to become more and more apparent that it impacts lifetime productivity.
0: Mm-hmm. Now this seems very basic, and maybe we should have kicked off the webinar with this, but. Basic terms describing the cell reproductive cycle.
1: So the Sal's reproductive cycle is a 21-day, roughly, uh, cycle of events. Uh, It's all based around her ovary and how her hypothalamus and pituitary control her ovary. And so you can divide it into two phases, the luteal phase and the follicular phase. So during the luteal phase, uh, her ovary has a corpus luteum on it, and it's producing the hormone progesterone, and during the follicular phase, uh, she has a large follicle which contains the egg or the oocyte and she's producing predominantly the hormone estrogen Um, so you really have kind of the estrogen events and the progesterone events Um, so the LH and FSH from the pituitary are going to stimulate that follicle to grow and produce more estrogen when she hits a peak level of estrogen she stimulates an LH surge um, which will then induce ovulation and that's when the follicle will turn into a corpus luteum and she'll enter into that progesterone phase uh, Progesterone is the hormone that's needed to maintain pregnancy, um, so if she is pregnant, that corpus luteum will stay on her ovary until pregnancy until farrowing. Otherwise, uh, she will recycle uh, in the with the hormone uh, prostaglandin from her uterus, and then that'll start her cycle over again.
0: Okay. Now there. Are- pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical in, interventions that can be taken. Can you explain yeah. uh, some of those, uh, what classes there are, what's available for producers?
1: Sure, so we really have kind of just a couple classifications of the drugs, and they're all based on those hormones of the cycle. Um, so the first one would be progesterone-based drugs, um, so Altrinagest drugs, they are usually orally fed progesterone drugs, and they will prevent an animal from coming into heat while they're being fed. So they're used to synchronize estrus in large groups of animals, or small groups really. Uh, Your other category of drugs would be uh, PG-600, so that has uh, two hormones in it that act like LH and FSH. Um, So that is used to induce puberty, as well as stimulate follicular growth in a post-weaned sow. So it stimulates those follicles to grow and produce estrogen and and induce puberty or an animal to come into heat. Uh, We also have GNRH-based products, so that's a hypothalamus uh, hormone. Uh, These are used to induce ovulation, so we use those for single-fixed timed AI to facilitate that process. Um, And then we have prostaglandin-based drugs that we can use in farrowing to basically act like that uterine source of it and turn over those CLs and induce parturition to occur. Okay.
0: Now we have a worldwide shortage of PG 600. Uh, Are there some practices that producers can use to best maximize uh, success when producers are able to use PG 600?
1: So the two times that we use PG-600 is going to be in the Gilt Development Unit to stimulate puberty and then in the post-ween sow to stimulate follicular growth. So I think in order to minimize the use, we have to kind of exhaust all of our other efforts to get the animals where they need to be without using the drug. So in the Gilt Development Unit, that's gonna come down to bore exposure. Um, and so appropriate good bore exposure talk about that in a minute here, but that needs to be conducted first and then the animals that don't respond to boar exposure are the subset of animals who need to try the PG-600 to get that puberty to happen. In the post-weaned sow, um, you know, if they have a good feed intake in lactation and they come out of lactation in good body condition, there's really no reason to think that they aren't going to naturally stimulate their own follicular growth. And so you have some problematic sows, specifically in the summer infertility, when we see a delay in that development of follicles. Um, So a lot of times infertility or summer will decrease LH secretion. And so we may need to use a little PG 600 in some post-weaned sows in the summer months specifically, maybe also in some lightweight sows that come out of lactation in a low body condition, but it probably doesn't need to be used as a blanket treatment for, for all animals. Okay,
0: now you teased us with the bore exposure uh, sure. impact. The, uh, can you elude on that a little more?
1: Yes, yeah, so across the industry, I think we have a lot of variation in bore exposure methods in, in the gilt development units. Um, as far as some have absolutely no bore exposure and others have 24 hours a day, seven days a week bore exposure. Um, and so the rules of thumb are that more is usually better. Uh, we don't want a gilt to be reared with a bore Constantly um, prior to puberty stimulation, because that will actually delay puberty. But after about 160 days of age, we need to have really good bore exposure daily, would be optimal. There is some data that even shows as much as a two day break can start to delay her response to the bore. So ideally, we'd like to see seven days a week of bore exposure. Um, full contact bore exposure is better than fence line. Uh, full contact bore exposure allows the the guilt to have all of her senses stimulated, not just uh, maybe some tactile or visual, but also be able to actually feel the weight of the boar and be more contact with his saliva. Um, So I probably would guess that in our systems today, um, maybe up to two minutes of exposure is about all that some of these guilts get in a day. Um, There are very few GDUs that maybe are putting a bore into the pen 24 hours a day, Um, but the data has shown that each individual gilt needs about 15 minutes of direct bore exposure per day to stimulate puberty. Um, So managing that is really hard on like Aaron talked about, facilities and labor, uh, that can be really challenging to get accomplished. The other part of boar exposure is the boar. So he has to be mature. Um, so the amount of pheromones he produces in his saliva goes up, and I think it's about 10 months of age where they really ramp up their pheromone production in their saliva. So we typically say we don't want boars to be younger than 10 months of age, and um, they have to be ranty and more interested in the gilts than feet on the floor or cleaning up around the mm-hmm. barn um, and so a lot of farms are using some Michon crossed boars um, and I'm not sure how those crosses age at puberty and development of pheromone production in those boars differs so I stick with the 10 or 11 months of age or better is probably needed but a lot of, of GDs are going to bring in those boars with the gilts and so they're usually actually a little on the young side to do a great job at at initiating puberty in the females
0: okay is there a sunset how old is too old for a boar
1: I think you wanna just look at body weight size maybe. Um, sometimes you get older boars that tend to get a little bit lazy, um, and, so, and then they get to be too big, and they start to intimidate some of the gilts. So some really old boars and their body size gets big, the gilts actually get a little bit more intimidated and don't come up and initiate contact with the boar themselves. Um, so I would say we just base that mainly on body weight of the boar, just not letting them get to be too old two, two and a half years is probably a good turnover time.
2: Okay. and making sure that, uh, in that uh, with that bore exposure, make sure we're rotating those bores out and not using just the bores that are the most docile or the ones that the caretaker, is their favorite bore, but we need to make sure they rotate them. Those bores get tired when they're going through those gilt development systems, and so we want that bore to be active and high libido and interested in the gilt so we get good bore exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that we see uh, is in these large pens with uh, heat checking, is making sure that uh, we use more than maybe one bore in some of those larger pins. You know, one bore is going to be able to cover what 25 to 30 gilts. If you got a larger pin, you may want to consider running multiple bores in there. Uh, one of the challenges with that is making sure those bores can get along. Uh, they probably need to be reared together so you don't have a lot of aggressive behavior between the bores. But that's that's something we see a lot of uh, is trying to heat check large pins with one bore and and he just can't get enough coverage across all those those gilts. So using multiple bores becomes important mm-hmm. but do it safely.
1: And some of those offsite GDU's they may not have the ability to change stocking density within those pens so making sure if you do have some larger group of groups of gilts that the bores can actually fit in those pens to have the interaction. Mm-hmm. One other thought is that it's it's in, it's kind of important to differentiate between a pu- prepubertal gilt boar stimulation and a postwean sow boar stimulation for just detecting heat to breed um, those are really two very different events so while most people think about the need of, of boar exposure to be just for heat checking in a post weaned sow that takes you know several seconds maybe a younger gilt or sow may take a few minutes to really lock up um, that boar exposure fence line is usually adequate and it's a short amount of time that those animals require Puberty stimulation is very different. That is actually helping the animal develop the ability to produce GNRH in their brain and have all of the subsequent effects of follicular growth and ovulation. And so that actually takes a lot more stimulation. So the amount of time that each individual animal in that pen requires in boar stimulation for puberty is much greater than a sow for heat detection. And so I don't think we do a very good job of that in most skill development units to get each individual animal a set amount of time with the boar.
2: Okay, And we talked about recording, um, you know, recording the animals that actually have an observed heat no serve so if we start heat checking six weeks prior to breeding, making sure we get those animals recorded on which animals had a heat no serve. And that information can be used uh, for breed production. So we go back to not hitting breed target. Uh, if we're capturing that data and we know how many wean wean we're going to wean, we also know how many heat no serves we have. And so we know where we're at in terms of hitting breed target. So if we do that proactively, we can manage to make sure that we don't miss breed target. But it's absolutely critical we manage those gilts and record that information on heat no-serves. So if we've got gilts in a population where we're not getting uh, animal cycling, um, you know, that that could be a situation where we may want to do some diagnostics to understand why uh, aren't we getting gilts to cycle or troubleshooting with the bore exposure uh, procedures and protocols. So uh, that becomes a critical piece as we manage that gilt population because Carol, what's what's the targets for the number of animals we should expect to have heat no serves by week 3 and week 6? Can you talk through that?
1: Yeah, so as soon as you if you start boar exposure around 160 days of age within 3-4 weeks, you should expect 70 to 90% of them to to have a heat no service. Mm-hmm. And those heat no services are going to also impact their future reproductive potential. So, um, Don Levis did a nice job at the 2000 Lehman Conference of summarizing a lot of data looking at breeding on the first versus second estrus and the first versus third estrus. And um, it was pretty much clear as day that if you breed on the first estrus and you don't have a recorded heat no service, um, that you're going to have a reduction in the number of pigs born alive. And so um, I think that's really important for us to be documenting, because if I had a nickel for every time I've heard, well, I started boar exposure at 150 days of age, and so by the time I breed em, brought them into the breeding barn, I've assumed they've had a couple of cycles out there in the barn. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's always happening and then we have some seasonal fluctuations that are going to reduce the number and it can reduce it down to 30 percent in the summer that are able to have a heat no service before they're moved into the breeding barn. So I think it is really important like Aaron said to do that record keeping and make sure we are breeding at a second or third estrus uh, and that they have cycled before they come into the breeding barn.
0: Now correct me if I'm wrong but I thought you mentioned some facilities or some operations don't have boar exposure. How do they, are they showing same production, uh, obviously it's working for them, why does it work for them?
1: So a lot of times they won't start the boar exposure, uh, like Aaron said, until they move into the isolation unit at the sow farm or once they're actually into the breeding herd and then some of them will then document the heat no service at the breeding, at the sow farm before they breed and then breed on a second heat there. Um, So that method may still be working for some of them, but a lot of those off-site GDUs don't have bore exposure in the barns.
0: So it's not that they're never exposed to a bore, it's just when
1: When, they're exposed. And they probably receive fence line more than any full contact when they get into the the breeding barn. The other thought there is about um, how to identify your most fertile gilts in order to select your best gilts that'll give you the best lifetime reproductive performance. So when we don't start boar exposure until later, maybe 180 or 190 days of age, or when they've moved into the sow farm, we're unable to identify those highly fertile gilts that would have come into puberty early with early boar stimulation. So I also think if your situation is something where you can't start boar exposure until a little bit later, knowing which gilts come into heat within the first 20 to 30 days of, of boar exposure, those are going to be your most fertile and most lifetime productive gilts. So having a way to identify those um, would be important.
0: So if those not exposed to boars at the GEU, you're missing out, um, yes. possibly missing out on productivity or longer productivity in your herd.
1: Yes, I, being able to identify those. We know that the gilts that come into puberty early, are going to be your best lifetime reproductive animals. And so we miss that opportunity to identify them if we don't get any boar exposure early and record the heat no service early. I mean, some of us, we still start boar exposure early, but we don't do any recording. So we still miss the opportunity to really identify the best gilts to select. Mm -hmm.
0: Kara, can you take us through uh, the changes that occur in a young gilt uh, as it matures to a breed eligible gilt?
1: Sure, so at birth, uh, the guilt is born, her ovary is com- completely full of all the eggs she's ever gonna have for her entire life. And so unfortunately, um, from actually in utero on, she's just losing eggs at, as her life develops. When she's born, her ovary and her uterus are still very susceptible to environmental influences that can negatively impact her forever. Um, and so you can see changes in egg nest development in her ovary, as well as uterine gland development, maybe being impaired um, from negative things going on in the first few weeks of life. Um, and so. There's some interesting data looking at lactation litter sizes and subsequent lifetime reproductive performance. Um, And that data shows that uh, gilts reared in smaller litters uh, come into puberty earlier and have greater total born and, and farrowing rates as they Um, continue through their parodies. Um, However, in modern-day genetics when we're producing 12, 14, 16 piglets per litter, um, it can be really hard to try to figure out how we would ever manage to create these small litter sizes for for the gilts to develop and and get free access to that much colostrum and milk. Um, So I think that that we have a lot of work to do in terms of um, early piglet management to try to determine how we can increase colostrum intake and get all of our gilts, especially replacement gilts, going at at a really good rate prior to weaning. Um, Once we get past weaning, it's about health and, and growth without any big chunks of negative time in there. So, I mean, we really just feed them to gain weight and and grow. We assume their reproductive tract is doing the same thing and growing and maturing with that animal. And then once we get around that time of puberty, it all comes down to that boar stimulation and really starting to get them to come in. You can do some other things like transportation of the animals, which can induce puberty, um, but we're gonna have just management to get them to come into puberty early. And those early, identifying those early ones are the most eligible animals.
0: We hear a lot about uh, seasonal infertility issues uh, and who knows what uh, et- each summer is going to bring but uh, there are issues brought up. Can you define uh, what that means and where are the impacts on overall ser- uh, sow herd productivity uh, as far as the seasonal impact?
1: So the majority of what I see as seasonal infertility is the impact of heat stress. Uh, probably photo period, genetics, nutrition also play a little bit of a role, but the majority of the impact on the animal comes from the impact of heat. Um, so when a animal, any animal gets hot, uh, the first thing they try to do is dissipate that heat by shunting blood away from their core to the extremities. And when that becomes ineffective, then they begin to pant. And as soon as we see panting in an animal, we can expect a reduction in feed intake. Um, and all their metabolic requirements are gonna go up while their feed intake is going down. So you can imagine that that's gonna have a a big impact on them from a metabolic and growth and everything standpoint. That blood that diverts away from the core means that the reproductive tract and the intestines also lose some blood flow. And when that happens, you have some hypoxic type events that go on where we get leaky gut syndrome. Um, And so that has other downstream impacts as well in terms of nutrient absorption and and things of that nature. Um, On the reproductive tract specifically, when we do that shunting of the blood away from the reproductive tract, we start to see some in the female things like decreases in egg quality and reductions in fertility. In the boar, we see changes in sperm production and semen output. Um, so there's a lot of changes that happen physiologically in the animal f- as they respond to the heat.
0: Are, are there nutritional things you can do to overcome uh, kind of conquer the uh, offset the seasonal infertility issues?
2: I would say uh, yes there is uh, as we look at seasonal infertility a lot of the emphasis that I see is put on that period from weaning to breed, but really you got to go back into lactation and, and understand what happened during that lactation period that set that animal up, maybe for some issues once that sow's weaned. And so, uh, from a feed management standpoint, there are some things we can do uh, ad libitum feeding, uh, but feed intake is absolutely critical uh, during that lactation period. Um, you know, as you think about things we can do to drive feed intake, uh, particularly during that, you know, during the hot summer months uh, or going into the, into the fall months. Uh, water is, another, is a good resource uh, from a wet-dry feeding standpoint. Uh, wet-dry feeders have to be managed, though. A lot of times what we see is uh, with wet-dry feeders, they're not managed very well, and you got a lot of flooding of the feeders and feed wastage, and, and also you can get spoilage if, if they're not cleaning those feeders out. The other factor there is wastage, so they've got to be managed, but uh, there's good research on wet-dry feeding to increase feed intake in, in gilts and sows. Uh, in lactation.
1: To add to Aaron's comments, I think the importance of the caretaker to get the pigs up and keep them feeding or keep them eating throughout um, lactation is is probably a real important management thing. Um, I think there's also a few research trials that have looked at different feed additives and things we can mix into the feed during the summer to try to improve or kind of mitigate the impacts of heat stress. But my personal opinion is we, as an industry, we really need to focus on removing the heat stress event, not mitigating the downstream effects of having the animal undergo the heat event. Mm-hmm. Um, so that comes back to some facilities, airflow, um, drippers, everything that we can think about to try to not have the animals undergo the heat stress in the first place is where we need to start to focus.
2: Okay and then when you hit those hot summer months is making sure that you know your environmental controls and your environmental equipment is working properly in that facility and then also um, you know looking at like the parity one female those animals are you know gonna be very susceptible to to having lower feed intakes uh, losing body weight loss. If you look at the research uh, sows that lose more than 5% of their body weight in lactation. We know that's gonna impact reproductive performance. Uh, wean to surface interval, total born and fairing rate. And so we need to really uh, mitigate any losses in lactation because if, if we see that animal losing weight in lactation, that's just gonna set us up for negative consequences as it relates to reproductive performance when we get her back uh, in the wean row.
0: What role does uh, feed consumption play during the uh, the lactation process, uh, or the phase, how, how important is uh, the nutrition requirements of the solid gilts at that time?
2: Mm-hmm. Kind of goes back to making sure that animal doesn't mobilize a lot of body weight and lactation. Um, you know, the, the research would suggest anything over 5% body weight loss uh, is gonna impact uh, subsequent reproductive performance, and so we need to put a lot of emphasis on feed intake and lactation, particularly on those, those parity one females Uh, The nutrition requirements are different. And so we need to look at making adjustments, you know, in terms of how we feed those parity one females. If the facility is set up to feed them separately, that's ideal. Uh, What I like to see done is if the facility is not set up to feed them separately, uh, grouping those animals in the same location and farrowing. So we know that that is a population that we need to focus on as we go into that farrowing room. And so there may be some opportunities to top dress those those parity one females or make sure that those animals are consuming feed. Again, they're entering that farrowing stall for the first time. They know how to use the water, they know how to use that feeder, but really putting a lot of emphasis on making sure, making sure those uh, parity one females are, are consuming feed uh, during that that critical time uh, during lactation. So I try to emphasize lactation feed intake uh, and certainly the breed to wean uh, and gestation feeding program's important, uh, but. The goal is not not to let that animal go into a, a severe negative energy balance because we know that's going to impact reproduction. On that guilt, the other thing we got to consider too in lactation is she has different nutritional requirements compared to the sow. Uh, we got to remind herself that she's still growing. She's going to be developing her mammary gland as she uh, gets later in a gestation. And you know she's susceptible, susceptible to body weight loss and lactation. So uh, a lot of times we feed one common diet to the entire sow herd. Uh, some facilities are set up to feed the parity ones dif- separately, which that's ideal. Or in some cases, uh, you may want to consider top dressing those parity one females with extra amino acids. We know the lysine requirements higher on those females. The other thing from a gilt development standpoint is making sure that we don't enter those uh, gilts too heavy into farrowing. Uh, we know those overconditioned animals are going to have lower feed intake. Um, subsequently lower milk production. A lot of times those heavier uh, gilts um, are not going to stay in the herd. Um, They're just going to have higher lifetime uh, feed maintenance cost. Uh, We'll probably experience a parity to dip and likely they'll be cold out of of the population and so uh, we need to make sure that we're um, entering those gilts into that farrowing house in ideal body condition and not over conditioned or under conditioned Mm -hmm. either.
0: How do you manage them after the post-weaning post feed intake? How do you manage that with the, the female population?
2: Yeah, so if you look at uh, the period from wean to breed, um, a lot of systems will try to full feed those animals to recover body weight lost in lactation. Uh, that's a pretty opportune time to recover um, uh, maternal body weight. Those animals while they're still wet coming out of lactation are very efficient. Um, You know, I like to focus on the animals that are most responsive to high feed levels uh, in that wean to to breed time. So animals that have lost a lot of body weight uh, in lactation, uh, that ought to be, you know, uh, females that you need to be uh, feeding higher levels to. Animals that are in ideal body condition, maybe there's some opportunity there there not to feed uh, higher levels, but feed above maintenance, of course. Uh, but there's a feed cost there too on feeding high feed levels to animals that may not need it or Maybe they're not as responsive to higher energy intakes, uh, but certainly for sows that are coming out uh, then um, certainly promote higher feed levels during that time and then uh, after the animals are bred uh, there's a, a period of time in there where we may want to uh, not feed extremely high levels of feed uh, just because we run the risk of uh, embryonic losses. There's some pretty good data on that. I know in today's modern sow, there's some research out that may uh, challenge that paradigm. Uh, some of that literature uh, would suggest in modern uh, sow genotypes that maybe you can feed higher feed levels and not impact embryo survival. But at this time, I'd probably be a proponent of restricting feed intake for the first uh, three days after breeding uh, to make sure we don't uh, lose any embryos during that time. And then after that, uh, period, uh, start to feed those animals to recover uh, body weight that was lost in lactation. Really in the p- first 30 days uh, I like to see those sows fully recovered in terms of any body weight they lost in lactation.
0: And how does that management change, does it change throughout the rest of the gestation? Do you How do you modify the nutritional balance uh, the rest of the way?
2: Yeah, so there's some checkpoints in the gestation period, so um, Like I mentioned, we try to get them recovered in the first 30 days and then go in at day 60 and 90 and either do a visual assessment a body condition score and adjust feed levels appropriately. As we start thinking about our our labor in these sow farms and uh, some of the unskilled labor, I'd probably be more of a proponent today of actually using sow calipers. I know uh, North Carolina State has done a lot of work with the sow caliper. Uh, I think that's a very objective tool uh, that takes a lot of the, the variation out of visual assessment of these animals. Uh, certainly visual assessment for uh, some farms works really well, particularly when you've got skilled animal caretakers. But for farms that may not have uh, a seasoned crew, if you will, uh, maybe you want to look at sow calipers and uh, certainly may want to tailor those sow calipers to your uh, your genotypes and work with your breeding company, your genetics company on helping you calibrate that to your uh, genetics that you're using within your farm or your system. That's mm-hmm. a, it's a very good tool. The, uh, the other piece, uh, in that gestation period that, uh, we, uh, talk a lot about is bump feeding. Um, and looking at bump feeding and some of the work that's been done on bump feeding, uh, bump feeding is a, a point in time where at day 90 or day 100, we increase feed levels. Um, you look at fetal growth, it's exponential during that time. And so we're trying to meet, um, the requirements for that, uh, conceptus gain at that time. We also have uh, the parity one female or the gilt that's still growing herself, uh, and so she needs extra amino acids. And so bump feeding uh, is an opportunity there to meet the nutrition requirements of that of that gilt that's still growing, as well as meet the needs of that uh, of those conceptus. Looking at the research on bump feeding, uh, it doesn't look like there's a lot of benefit of bump feeding in sows as compared to to the gilt. I advocate bump feeding particularly on gilts and also uh, in gilts that are either um, in an ideal body condition or under condition. If a gilts already over conditioned, no sense in bump feeding her. Um, You're setting her up to go in the farrowing even heavier and that's going to set up some problems in lactation as it relates to feed intake and and reproductive performance. And then also on the sow side, if, if we've got sows that are not in ideal condition, even though the bump feeding research in sows is is not real, it doesn't look real beneficial, I'd still bump feed on sows that are not in ideal body condition. Then sows uh, probably should be bump fed because they're in a negative energy balance. As I mentioned earlier, as we go along in gestation, we we do a body condition score typically at the time of breeding. We do it at day 30, 60, 90, but make sure we record that data to understand how that animal's changing through gestation so we can manage those feed levels appropriately and make sure that the feeding program as well as the measurement system if it's the calibers are working to achieve the desired body condition um, and really check make sure the feeding program is working uh, for the farm
0: Mm -hmm. that concludes part one of this week's episode be sure to stay tuned for part two which will be broadcast in two weeks As always, we thank you for listening and encourage you to subscribe for future episodes from Merck Animal Health and learn more about Merck Animal Health at drivenbyprevention.com.